you know, sometimes I have students who say, I want to do art law, I want to do art law, I want to go to law school and do art law. And then they end up doing tax law or criminal law, you know, because they find that to be more compelling. And then vice versa, you know, sometimes people go to law school wanting to do criminal law, and then they end up doing art law. Well, when I started, I actually wanted to do human rights. That's what my big push was. And it, it kind of still uh -huh. is in a lot of ways. Like human trafficking is a, a cause that I care deeply about. But uh, as far as uh, the people I've heard from, they start off wanting to do art law, but don't know how to get into it. And what I was always told is uh, it's a niche. And unless someone dies, you're not going to get a chance to have any real position. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I think that's a canned answer. I think that's a very canned answer. Not on your part, but on, on those that do say that. Right. Because no one died and here I am doing it, you know? And here you are doing it, presumably, right? And, and um, it's, it's this belief that, you know, there, there's only so much pie and, and, and there are gatekeepers, right? And, and it's kind of like, you have to wait until we allow you to have a sampling of the pie. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And that was an excerpt from my conversation with artist and attorney, Sergio Sarmiento. Even before the interview began, he and I were diving into the depths of issues about art and law. From the global practice of art law and how best to protect artists' rights to whether NFTs should be considered art, with an analogy involving a pet rock. From there, we continue the discussion about how art is defined touching on examples like street murals and social programs hosted by museums. We consider what value art brings and discuss the art and law program, what inspired its creation, how it has evolved, and what it's comprised of, including a coloring book born out of the pandemic. And Mr. Sarmiento shares a bit about his current project, exploring what relationships there might be between the worlds of heavy metal rock, classic cars and motorcycles, and the martial arts. And how his career shows that one can passionately pursue the fields of art and law in an independent fashion. You know, when I started practicing art seriously in 1992, and up until I'd say the turn of the 21st century, it was primarily New York was still the art world, right? And uh, but since then, I think pretty confidently I can say that it's global, uh, both in terms of its not just its market approach and reception, but also the production. Where you know you could be an artist now, literally living in Austin, Texas, or in El Paso, Texas. Uh, you know, anywhere in the world and you don't have to live or have a studio in New York. Uh, so and when I'm, I'm saying that because I think, so the practice of art law has expanded to be global. Like if you speak other languages, if you are familiar with other cultures, other modes of defining art, other access to galleries, markets, museums, and so forth, right? So it's no longer just like, oh, it's, 
five people in New York City practicing art law. <laughs> in fact, I have a, a former student uh, who's just a, who lives in, in, in uh, South Korean Seoul, uh, Korea, and he's applying to law school there because he wants to do art law in Korea, right, in South Korea. And so I, I said, absolutely. Now I have someone to refer my clients do what I need local counsel in Korea. That's a joke. But, you know, I say I say it's not necessarily a, 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 a good thing because... Who knows what the future holds? <laughs> you never know. No, you know, I say it may not be that good also because... And maybe we'll discuss this more as we go along today. But to the detriment of art, I think I think art has become too reliant on the law. Right. And by that, I mean everything that encompasses the profession um, in every way, you know, calling attorneys, you know, seeking legal advice, legal counsel to, you know, now people wanting to study art law. You know, that didn't exist. Maybe to some extent when you went to school, but I would say even to 2010, there really wasn't an art law. You know, like you said, you could go to school and say, I want to, I want to study human rights or I want to study constitutional law or uh, First Amendment law. And now that it's become kind of a profession, it's also impacted the way the art world works because you have artists who have their lawyers on speed dial, you know, like, you know, and, and I, don't, I just don't know if that's a good thing for art. And the other thing I heard you mention in one of the interviews, it might have been hyperallergic, but it was this idea of keeping regulation at a minimum and not encouraging it. So like protecting artist rights through contract as opposed to encouraging federal legislation. Yes, I think that was in relation to um, resale royalties, Mm, I believe, right? Um, This ongoing debate. There was an article that was drafted and, and, and I think it ran on Artnet maybe in November, and it was penned by four authors from New York City, I believe. And one of them was a good friend of mine, Lauren Van Hoftenschick. And, you know, they were arguing for these resale royalties, but they pushed it even further to be some kind of distribution process, right, or or some kind of income redistribution. And that's where I just get really, not one red flag, there's like a thousand red flags going on. Because then we're, you know, then we're talking as art, as a profession, right? The way you would think about uh, a plumber's union or the medical establishment or our legal establishment, right? Where we're licensed, where there has to be pro bono, right? In other words, now there's something, some space out there. And I, I use that term only because I'm, I'm envisioning your, your, your listeners, right? There's a, a regulatory process. And, uh, you know... I can I can sort of understand that why lawyers and, and physicians artists I'm not sure that that's what I want for the artistic field. From what I've read, art as a definition for you is something that you feel strongly about, and so I was curious how you felt about NFTs being denied uh, the art definition recently. I agree with that. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that even the article I was I was reading a couple of articles that were referencing this, the idea that um, Wikipedia would be the thing that defines terms now, and that people are so <laughs> up in arms about that. I thought that in itself was interesting. Right, right. No, that's well. That was what I I almost thought. Like, wow, 
people, where have they been the last, uh, let's just say, I was going to say jokingly the last 120 years, but but more seriously, you know, where have they gained their knowledge of art? Because we used to joke in art school, uh, you know, when we had very long critiques, that ultimately we would end up at the, the question of what is art? And we would say that, of course, you know, ironically, uh, laughing, um, because we were always discussing that, right? Um, whether it was with an individual student's work or in mass reading, you know, critical theory, historians, you know, the question always was, you know, why are we discussing this and not, um, you know, other issues? Um, but, um, you know, the NFT problem for me is, you know, I come from a from an education, art educational background where um, one picks the medium that is best suited for the concept, right? Um, so I think what's happened with the NFTs is it's that it's ass backwards, um, you know, you know where where people are just infatuated with this thing and. Because we in the, in the artistic community have done a grave injustice to art by saying everything can be art, then there, there is no pushback or, or very little pushback to, to those people that say that NFTs are art, right? Because if, if we've established that passing out clean needles as performance art is art, then why, why can't NFTs be art, right? But my teachers and myself included would say, well, but why are you using that vehicle? Why is that important to your artistic concept, to your message, right, to your expression? And I don't think NFT people think about that. I, I think they're caught up in the, what I call the pet rock syndrome. Do you, are, do you remember the, or you, are you familiar with the pet rock I heard you reference that, but I would like for you to describe that a little more. So the pet rock was a was was a toy, and I put that in quotation marks for the listeners. That came about in the 1970s, and it was basically an invention. It was it was trademarked. It was uh, it's protected by intellectual property. I, mean, I, I never bought one. We just didn't have money to be buying rocks. But of course, as you can see, the, the humor in it is that why are you purchasing something that you could step outside of most homes and acquire, right? Um, maybe not so much in urban centers, but um, you could certainly find a rock. And then by, by a rock, I mean a rock. It's, not, it's nothing precious. It's just a rock. And so I've used that, you know, since I started studying it art and law seriously because I think you know what, ha what how does that phenomenon happen right uh, what what has to transpire for people to believe not only in this thing but in the commodification of the thing right because it's one thing to say we should all have pet rocks right but now I'm going to make the effort remember this is the 1970s so I have to fill out a little coupon put my name and get my parents to give me a check for, you know, $10 and 99 cents and make a check out to the pet rock company and, and then wait for six weeks in the mail for someone to send me a rock. Like the, the lunacy of that, uh, is what fascinates me. And so I think the NFT is no different. 
The the way they couched it was that digital artists have always been fighting for their rights, and this is just another example. They always will be. <laughs> Are we officially doing the interview now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we can go anywhere. I, I have to say, you know, as a former former post-structuralist, recovering post-structuralist, I should say. To me, the, the question of when are we beginning and ending is a fascinating one, right? Sergio Sarmiento, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Would you start with describing a bit about your work, both as an artist and as an attorney? You know, I, I like I mentioned earlier, I started uh, seriously thinking about art uh, in 1992 as an undergrad uh, in at the University of Texas at El Paso, and um, I marked that as a seminal moment because I think that's when when I became fascinated by. Um, uh, the relationship between thinking and making. Uh, and it was in particular on philosophy, um, Western philosophy, and, and, and there was the, the Plato's myth of the cave. Um, no, I'm telling you all this, and I, I, this isn't going to be me recollecting, you know, every minute of my past life, but, but it's a seminal moment because I think that's when I realized that there was that connection. It wasn't simply making or simply thinking. It, there was a strong relationship between the two. And so that strongly influenced how I thought about art making. And so, as you can imagine, my immediate love for art fell to artists that work with ideas, right? The so-called conceptual artists, the minimal artists, um, but also those standing from the early 20th century, the Dadaists, uh, the Futurists. Um, and so that's a preface to saying when I went to CalArts in 1995, I continued that exploration. Um, it's still very strongly linked to the making process. Okay, so I've always been very interested in materiality. Of, of art making. And this is another reason why to be NFTs, they're not that interesting is because there is no materiality. Where is the, where is the tactileness of the work? Um, the aesthetics of the work. And so then after that, I, I after CalArts, I went to the Whitney program and I have to say, you know, it was a good experience, but at the same time, I, in retrospect, it's something I probably could have done without because there was too much emphasis placed on the quote-unquote criticality of it and not enough on the materiality of art making. Okay. So, so I stopped making art for about a year. At this time, I'm, I'm in, in Los Angeles. I'm teaching at uh, the University of Southern California. And I stopped making art for a year. And I... I, my fascination with critical theory still continues. And, it, it, and my fascination with critical theory takes me to uh, the question of, of law, the question of justice. And simultaneously, I'm doing works that deal with the, 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 the concept of private property and public property, you see. And so, of course, the, 
the writers I was reading were referencing the law. Yes. Um, and I realized that in order to understand that language, I had to learn its head. You know, I, I couldn't just read about it. Um, so from that came my interest in applying to law school. And I originally applied to law school as an art project and never really thought I would be practicing law. But I really, the intellectual rigor of law made me want to decide to practice it, but with a, with a focus on uh, the, the art industry. So that's, the, that's what leads to what I do. And, and now what I do, and, and you can jump in at any time. I don't want to, you know, over say. <laughs> well, I was curious, um, the, the catalyst for the art and law program. And was that just this rolling interest that you're talking about that kind of just came to a head when you decided to, to create the program? That's a good question. You know, the Art of Law program happened during law school. The, 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 the springboard happened during law school because, you know, for, for me, I was surrounded by peers that were extremely intelligent, number one. And number two, also my professors, visiting lecturers, and I, you know, it's this, you know, it's like learning a new language, a new culture. It's like being on a different planet, right? And especially if you're coming from an art background. So what I found fascinating about that was that I, I thought, why weren't we during the Whitney program or CalArts exposed to legal thinkers or people who think about seriously, rigorously, and uniquely and I thought, wouldn't it be great one day for artists to have access to that, right? To think about art through the legal spectrum and, and legal language. And, and so then I thought, you know, one day when I'm out of law school, I'm going to start an art and law program. So how has the, uh, the, that core mission, how has it evolved? It's been over a decade now and so it does seem to have taken many interesting steps with its programs and currently the artists that are engaged or or will be engaged i think are not necessarily dealing with law so i was just kind of curious like what your thoughts are on how it has evolved oh that's another fascinating question because it has evolved a lot almost uh, i think 180 is the 180 degrees is the best way of putting it. When it, when we started in 2010, um, it, we were looking for applicants, artists, writers, curators, historians that were that were dealing with the law directly. Right. In other words, their their work dealt with, say, for example, copyright issues, um, or uh, you know, they were writing about. Um, issues that, that address the First Amendment or expression and so forth, right? Um, property, uh, you know, especially in New York City, air rights, something of that nature. Um, and I have to say around year six, seven, uh, I started to notice that precisely what I didn't want to happen was happening with a lot of art and law artistic practices, which is that instead of the, the projects making law part of the concept 
and part of the medium, some artists started to employ the law in a symbolic fashion. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is that it, it was, it, to be quite blunt, it just seems a bit lazy, right? Where, where there is no true exploration of the law uh, as, a, as a structural force, right? In other words, it's purely representational. And the best example I can give you of that is it, it, up to uh, making a painting of a handgun and, and then saying that that painting addresses the question of an individual's right to, to own and carry a firearm, right? The Second Amendment. And so to me, that painting does nothing to address the question of an individual's right to carry and, and possess a handgun. Um, and so what has happened now is that I, I think there should be a, a, a distinction between the law on the one hand and the art on the other. And I'm not so sure that art now in 2022 should invoke the law as medium. In fact, I'm, I'm at the point for the last two years where I think the, we need movement or moment where art, once again, I'll say once again, is a mode of expression that is outside of current symbolic modes of expression. In other words, where it's its own language, that it doesn't need to refer back to the law. It doesn't need to involve the law, if that makes sense. For issues that an artist might be wanting to address, are you suggesting that they would have their own way of doing that that would not incorporate legal aspects of it? Or could you give an example? Yeah, that's another great question. You know, um, uh, one reason I, I, I really love that you reached out was because it gives me a chance to put these thoughts in in an archival recorded format, right? So I can't ever go back and say, I never said that. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I'm highly skeptical. I'll put it in a, in a very nice way. I'm very skeptical of art now. I'm very skeptical now of art that, that attempts or believes that it is critiquing the system. And I'm putting that in quotes. Okay. Um, if, if you, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when I give lectures or I teach, or even if you go to any, almost any New York gallery, most of the way that artists define themselves or their artistic statements are that they are artists, educators, activists, teachers, writers, whose work. And then they give you a litany of these mega concepts, right? It isn't just critiques language, it's language and post-colonialism and neo-colonialism and empiricism and phenomenology and God knows what else. And then you look at the work and you think to yourself, this is a painting with a red stripe on it. Or this is, um, I'm doing more reading than aesthetic, uh, an aesthetic approach to the object, to the material. You know, why isn't this a book? Why isn't this um, an article 
in the New York Times. Why isn't this an op-ed instead? Why, why does it have to be called art? So um, all this to say, I'm, I'm skeptical that art can genuinely and honestly employ um, a, a critical format and, and, and have any uh, true substance and, and any true value outside of itself. Well, I guess that brings me to a question about what gives it the value or, or how is that value um, decided on? And, and I'm thinking what, what comes to mind is something like a graffiti artist who puts his work out to comment on an oppressive government. And even though he knows that piece probably is very temporary, that, you know, I've read where someone walks by that piece in the community and they see that they can connect with that person. They're not alone in feeling like they're experiencing um, injustice. So that kind of, um, it, it's sort of a direct comment on the legal framework they're living in and they're calling it art. I was curious what you think of that kind of example. Just to clarify, the, the person walking by that mural also believes that they're being um, impacted negatively by the mural? No, by the government. Like, you know, I, I read an article a while ago where uh, that, that kind of exchange happened where, you know, the mural was eventually whitewashed, but there were passersby who connected with it. And it was, in, in a way, a very legal artistic overlap. And, and I was curious uh, in that kind of framework, what your thoughts were about your, your 180. You know, um, I think you're referencing the five points uh, mural whitewashing, maybe, or may, it might be another situation, but it, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's other, it's like sort of, yeah, it's a global thing where I've seen here and there that kind of thing. And, and to me, five points is, you know, it's a very interesting case, but it's not necessarily a political commentary on an oppressive government. Some might I see. Wrong. I see. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say, sorry, I was going to say uh, thank you for the distinction, because I think that's where I was going is if, if we look at the context of the, the political mural for example, that you were referencing. Um, there's a necessity. Right? Um, you know, I was in Venezuela in 2013, and there was a lot of this activity going on. This, this um, um, I don't, I'm not even going to call it a mural, but uh, a political slogan on the wall, and then the next day it was gone, right? It was painted over. And then again, the third day, it was painted back up. Um, there's a necessity, number one. Two, I'm not so sure that the, the, the creator, the author of, of that wall work would think of it as art in the same way that probably you and I are discussing art, right? So, um, you know, there, there, it isn't done with the intent of commodifying it and with the intent of getting into a New York gallery, right? It's, there, there's a need for that utterance and that expression to exist. See, and, and it's funny, that it, and I'm glad you bring up the mural artist because I think that's uh, 
to some extent, or if not to a large extent, what's happened in the U.S. with so-called mural artists is that they know that it's a stepping stone to a more commercial uh, world and a and more commercial acceptance of what they do. And the ultimate blessing of being called artists with a capital A. And that's something that I, I want to mention here because it's something I've become very interested in recently is, you know, the question of since when did art, since when did artists need validation? It's very personalized. You know? Perhaps all through the centuries they have. <laughs> Just depends on which one. Yeah, but you know, now I, I, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. But now because it's more global, it just seems more pandemic to use that word uh, where, you know, you, every week it's, I get an email blast, but like, you know, some new awards or right. You know, the XYZ foundation is awarding these 10 artists with recognition. But, you know, and, but, but also in a more uh, immediate level, I have former students who just want to be, they're, they're like, I, I want people to know I'm an artist, you know? And it's, okay, so you are. What's the problem, you know? Why, why do you need me to say, this is my friend Joe, who's an artist? Well, and it also sort of segues at what we were talking about just now, this um, idea of what constitutes art and why does it matter? And so you were talking before about the value of art. And I am curious uh, also, uh, has that changed greatly for you? What has influenced you in, in what you see as art and, and the value that it brings? Now? You mean now? Well, how, it's, how, it's, how you feel now and how it's changed, or if it has, I, I, I get the impression that it has changed. It has changed a lot. <laughs> well, there we are now at 360, because in 1992, like I said, I was very interested in the materiality and the idea, right? Um, but also in the separation of art, you know, I thought, well, this is a, a room, a space, a universe that I like because it has its own rules, it has, which are no rules, and uh, its own players, its own so forth right? so it's on universe and then slowly it just became that universe became part of the bigger uh, what I call existing universe and, and so now you know I went through the period where my work was this critical type of art works right then, then they had to critique something um, but in the last I'd say in the last two or three years I've been very interested in artists who uh, are interested in abstraction, who both in the two-dimensional form and the three-dimensional form. Um, and artists that um, uh, are, are looking at, at more at philosophical questions that I believe still have not been decided, even in this technological age. What is an image? And, and what does it mean to create that? Uh, what is language? Uh, so I'm looking at a lot of abstract painters and, and, and thinking about the question of image making, you know, and, and the question of picture. So as you can see, it's, it's very different than the work I was doing 20 years ago that was about trespassing and the question of what is private property, right? 
On your uh, personal practice, are you doing image making of your own currently, or uh, how does that look for you? Yes, I, I'm doing. It's it's very it, it's a very fun activity, and I use the word fun uh, purposely because I think that's one thing many artists have forgotten is that you know it's kind of like rock and roll. If you're not having fun, then why are you doing it, right? Um, and um, so a lot that I'm doing is going back and reading, you know, late 19th century, all through 20th century artists that I, you know, looking at Mondrian, um, both looking at their work, but, but reading about their work. Um, and then really for myself is thinking about, you know, what is my, what would a picture look like that I want to look at now? You know, since there's to me, and I don't mean to sound, you know, nihilistic, but there's very little today being produced that I want to look at. Right? There's a lot historically, but you know, on January 28th, 2022, there's very little that I want to look at. So what would I want to look at? And that's my impetus is to create that picture. Can you give an example of of something or, or is there anything uh, available to see? <laughs> <laughs> no, although I, you know, I'm, I'm in conversations. <laughs> yeah, I know you're probably like, what with that? See, this is interesting, right? Because if I said, oh, I'm doing a project where I, I trespass onto private property and I build a structure, an architectural structure that references, you know, uh, neoclassicism, then we have, or, or mind has something, right? To, to digest, and because I'm talking about abstraction and, and, and image making and picture making, we don't. So I think that's fascinating. But I'll tell you this much. So two things. One, I'm working on a book that will be a combination of my manifesto with some of my work visual. You know. um, but but and, and so the images, to be more precise as to, to your question, really involve the areas of culture that I'm fascinated by. And that involves, as you can probably tell by my t-shirt, heavy metal rock culture. And it's, it's not just, you know, the music, it's the culture. Um, I'm very interested in car, classic cars and motorcycles. So it's, there's that culture. Um, and there's also uh, the third one would be uh, the martial arts, which is an area also that it's very close to me. So, it, you know, it's both conceptually, culturally, and visually, you know, what is the relationship between, uh, if anything, those worlds. But nothing is being critiqued. It, it, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to venture to uh, ask uh, any plans to turn any of that into an NFT. Tongue in cheek, of course. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, uh, so before we started uh, officially into our our conversation, you were giving your thoughts about NFTs, and if you would just kind of summarize the current day issues and, and how you see them uh, revolving around NFTs, and are they being addressed in your program? I, you know, we touched upon it very little the, a year ago, 
uh, in the program. Um, but, you know, also I didn't find, I don't think the fellows found it that interesting either. You know, it wasn't like we have to discuss, you know, this, this new, uh, you know, planet that has been discovered. You know, there wasn't, there was no excitement. Um, and, you know, I think for your listeners, what I would say is, you know, the National Basketball Association, to me, really, uh, that's the only place you need to look if you want to think about NFT. You know, if you go on their website, they have, you know, I think it is actually a website just for NBA NFTs. Okay. And look at their terms of service. And to your non-lawyer audience, you know, that's sort of the agreement between the NBA NFTs, that company, and the user uh, slash purchaser, right? And the reason I say look at that is because when you read the terms of service, what you ultimately, if you're an attorney, what you see is like, this is just a license. There's nothing else but a license. You know, it's this new people saw horses. Did did they create a legal system to just apply to the horse? He's like, because if you think about it, you pretty much would have the same problems you would have uh, in history, which you sell and trade or, or purchase horses, right? You ride horses. Someone's going to fall off a horse and get injured. Someone's going to get hit by the horse. You know, maybe you have a torque. Uh, you know, is a horse a person or not? Right? So once he put it that way, I thought, oh yeah, this is nothing new. It's just, and when we opened up the casebook, it was, you know, constitutional law, contracts, towards employment, all of the usual legal doctrines as they apply to this thing called cyberspace in air quotes. Right. So I think the same thing's happening with NFTs. I think it's really intellectual property meets licensing. And, you know, other than that, uh, we have the pet rock, as I mentioned earlier, right? People just want something new. And, and, you know, I I have to say, this is my emotive part, where I think it's sad that that it's a feeling that digital artists want to finally be thought of as artists. But I think it's also the fact that it's coupled with with this type of uh, speculation, right? Where, where people are really doing it because it's a way to make a lot of money and make it quickly. Shifting gears, I I would love to hear about how the program's coloring book came about. <laughs> oh, the Art and Lock coloring book. Yes. You know, first, I think I, after you asked me that, I went back on your website and I noticed that you, you, I think you also do children's books or is that yeah. correct? Well, that's one of the things, yeah, I've been working on lately. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we can get you to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, uh, if you're interested, uh, uh, submit, uh, a coloring page or pages. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, it's gotten, I'd absolutely yeah, love it, to. Okay, great, great. Um, you know, it came about at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, so early part of 2020, when I don't have children, 
no, we don't have children, my wife right. So we didn't we weren't faced with that nightmare scenario of, you know, school shutting down, uh, online learning and so forth, right? Um, and two, I started to notice simultaneously the disparity between educational systems, right? The private and the public, for the most part. And I thought, you know, what are kids doing? And in conversation with a good friend of mine, you know, it's, it's what do kids do after they're done with their schoolwork? They're still at home, right? Um, and I thought, huh, like a coloring book, like something that would be artistic, yet they could also learn about, you know, something about, say, for example, the law, right? Um, and so that was the, the impetus. And then... So, and originally, I wanted to just do images. But if you go online, as you probably have, you'll see links to things like, you know, who is Thurgood Marshall? Uh, what is law? <laughs> what is government? Right? And, and a friend of mine, only one person has said to me, wow, do you really think children know who John Locke is? <laughs> I'm like, No. But I think that's part of what I was trying to address was that why do we infantilize children? And I'm using the term infantilize uh, on purpose, right? Um, there's, a, there's this sort of very um, immature approach, right? Um, and, and so anyway, that's my long-winded explanation as to what, what led to the color book. And so, uh, just you've kind of touched on a few of the topics, but would you uh, give like a few examples, maybe, of some of the ones that um, that you think show the breadth? Because it 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 really has like every topic. Uh, and I I kind of looked at it. I would love to hear your thoughts about it's sort of a, a mark of social justice being addressed in all the topics that are raised there. Oh, how so? I'm just curious if you had one yeah. example. Yeah, well, you know, talking about Thurgood Mar- Marshall or uh, the, the role that women play in having more agency in in making our world advance and tribal lands and the issues there. Like just sort of almost every issue, it's like a wide range and, and it did just smack of here are social justice issues and let me educate you on them. And I, I love that about it. No, I, absolutely. But, you know, I think to be fair, and I say to be fair, there's also, well, it's not to be fair. It, it's diverse in the sense that there's also issues of, um, of, of, of political diversity, right? Whether it's libertarianism, um, Thought. And, and I say that because that's one thing the program, uh, that is one thing about the program that stayed consistent, which is that paramount to the philosophy of the program is, is the Socratic method, is asking questions. What is? So if you notice about the coloring book, right, there's a lot of what is law, what is art, you know, uh, what is government and so forth. And what is architecture? <laughs> What is architecture, right? And, and it doesn't say this is what it is. 
right? And, and so the link takes you to one way of defining it, and hopefully you'll be like, well, is that it, right? Is to, cre- is to keep that creative, inquisitive mind flowing. And so I'm hoping that the coloring book reflects the programming that it is. It's not a, an agenda. It's not one perspective. It's not indoctrination. It's the, it's the Socratic method in, in a visual format. Another aspect of the program that caught my eye was culture and justice. How is that addressed and what does that look like then and now? You know, where did, where did you see that? Because you, you, met, you mentioned that in your email and you, wanted to, and you put it in quotation marks and I thought, where is that? I, it's, on the, it's on the program's website. It's on the website? <laughs> well, well, I can't wait to hear how it's addressed. I have to make sure to delete <laughs> I'm going to have to delete that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, well, if it's there, I'm responsible for it. So what is culture? <laughs> well, culture, you know, um, <laughs> that's very funny. Now I have to find it. Um, it's, I say that because I'm going to give you an answer that many of your listeners probably won't like, which is, I don't know. And let's start with the reverse. Let's start with justice, for example, right? Um, Rather than reading, let's say, in the program, texts about justice, which there are many, um, I, I think it's shown by example through the cases that we read, right? Um, and also uh, cases that we discuss during our seminars, right? Um, and so that brings us to can how do how do we individually define the concept of justice? And two, can that ever be attained uh, completely? Right? Um, or is justice, for example, provisional? Is it um, is it something that we? It's a bridge from here to there. In other words, that 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 temporarily fulfills us in order for us to get to the next step, the next phase? Or is it something that if we can't ever achieve, then is this why we're in a perpetual state of misery? Right? Um, which is really what, I, what I've been thinking about recently. Does that make sense? Right? So the, the fellows won't leave saying, oh, justice is. right, And of course, it, it, it won't be because you'll have conservative fellows, you'll have liberal fellows, you'll have libertarians, um, far left progressive, you know, we've had a couple of, you know, far right, um, fellows, which by the way, that's the other thing I love about the program is that it isn't, as you can tell, unidirectional. It's, it really is a spider web. (laughs) So the concept of justice is addressed more through the cases uh, and the examples that 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 we view in class, and then you know it's left up to everyone to decide. You know, uh, what is this term? And, and culturally, I think it would be the same thing. You know, I, I try not to, to to dictate what I or to say what I think 
very often in the program. And in fact, some fellows have always said, can't you just give us an answer? You know, and, and of course, what follows that is another question. What about uh, your thoughts on current cultural powers and, and whether there are certain ones that, that strike you as thwarting or facilitating justice? And one that comes to mind is just the art industry as a whole. Would you consider that a cultural power? I just want to be clear on your question. You're asking me what I think about the art industry or my, my terminology of the art industry. Yeah, that's just one, like, you know, a lot of times people refer to museums as um, having cultural power. And so I was putting that out there as a possible example, but I'd like to hear what you see as a cultural power and whether or not you have seen instances where that kind of power has been used in uh, a negative or positive way to impact society. Yeah, that's another great question. Um, you know, I'm trying to, to phrase this in a more. I, I I don't I don't understand why museums, since you brought up museums, for example. You know, I, I don't understand why there's a fascination with museums to want to play a bigger, quote-unquote, social role than what they're already doing, which is, and what their mandate is, which is to show art, right? And, and so, you know, some museums, for example, have wanted to, um, you know, become community centers and um, do things like promote, you know, voter registration and, you know, including a museum in the United States that wants to have, you know, bathrooms and toilets, you know, and, and showers and, and, and I'm not joking. Right. And, and so, you know, that just goes back to my, my, my question of, well, if, if art is everything, then art is nothing. If museums are everything, then museums are nothing, right? Um, but on a more powerful level, is that the best way to address that problem? And so I'll give you an example. Uh, of, uh, one of the uh, lecturers of the, uh, for the Art and Law program asked me one time, he said, you know, Sergio, this is in front of the fellows in the seminar. He said, you know, I, I don't understand a legal professor, legal scholar, very well known in, in constitutional law circles and immigration law. And he said, you know, I don't understand this one artist because I don't want to, it, it's, it's in other places that I've written about. But he says to me, you know, asks me, I don't understand this artist's work about immigration. He says, why does it have to be called art? He says, because he says, I work in my law school. There's a legal clinic that just handles immigration cases. And they have a fascinating, fabulous faculty who, who, who leads that clinic. And she doesn't say she's an artist. Why does this other artist or why does this other person who, who alleges to address immigration issues call herself an artist? And why does she call this project art? 
right? And I think that kind of says that, you know, it's, is, it, it, is there a genuine interest in addressing the social issue or is there more, let's use the social issue as a commodity to fulfill our industry needs and desires? You see, and so I think with, with museums, you know, why isn't it enough that you show art? Why isn't that enough? Right? Because if I call a plumber, if, if, if I have a leak today in, in my home and I call a plumber, I want a plumber. Right? I, I don't want an artist who says I'm performing plumbing services as art. Okay? Or I don't want the plumber to call himself an artist. I want a plumber. If he wants to call it art. I mean, yeah, well, that's the thing, though. If, if um, like, should it be limited if there are those who feel that way your point about the value of it and whether it's the best avenue to do that is certainly well taken i just wonder there are people that feel very strongly that art and economics have a, a strong place together and can make an impact on you know doing projects for social good and they call it art and uh so i wonder like for those artists who feel that way versus those who disagree, is it a matter of just having mutual respect for how we all uniquely define art? What do you think? Because I think simply um, accepting would cause um, would cause that other form or type of artistic activity to Right, and in fact, it, it only heightens them, or um, does nothing for those communities or those individuals that they, that these projects portend to alleviate. Right, and so in other words, it, it, it institutionalizes that practice. Right, I, you know, a few minutes ago I said how some artists will define themselves as artists, activists, teachers. Right, right, and why is an artist not? I'm, why isn't why aren't you doing enough as an artist? Going back to what you were saying before about how you started law school as a project up until now, is there anything looking back that you would do differently? Since law school? Or even deciding to go to law school, would you do any of that differently? <laughs> I'm sure there are lots of things, but in the big picture, are there? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, hmm. Um, boy, you, like, really pose difficult questions. Um, I didn't think it was going to be this hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I apologize. No, I don't apologize. Um, I, yes. But I would probably go back to 1997. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I would. And of course, now you're going to ask me, well, what would you do differently? <laughs> if you care to share. <laughs> um, I don't know that I'm ready to share that. I, I Maybe we can do 2.0 if... 
you ever want to do 2.0. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe after the book comes out. Yes, after the book. Great. So uh, to end with this, unless there's anything else that you would like to share, I would love to hear your thoughts going forward on the impact that you hope that your work, including the work with the program, um, makes. Another good question. I, uh, that one's easy. Well, easier. Um, you know, one thing that I, I hope it does is that it, it, it creates, um, as much as I hate the term blueprint or framework, for others to see that it is possible to, to exist and to have a practice as an artist and someone who's interested in culture without the necessity of a institutional affiliation. Right? I mean, I, I don't teach at any, um, we call it a certified institution, right? College or university. Um, I have my own practice. So I'm not with a law firm. Uh, I've managed to do my projects pretty much on a shoestring budget, and that's since day one. Um, and really have the freedom and liberty to not be tied down by you know government, state funding or foundational funding, but also by market forces. You know, what does my gallery want? You know, what does the museum want? Um, what does my school want? And I think at the end of the day is that it's possible to do that. You know, it doesn't have to be the way I did it or the same discourses or areas of study, but it, it is possible to exist as independent as one can get, I think. There will be a link in the show notes to the websites for Mr. Sarmiento and the Art and Law Program. If you'd like to share your thoughts about this or any of the other podcast episodes, please leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. Or you can email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com or leave a voice message at 1-929-260-4942. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember... Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.